Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Father, you have revealed these things to us that we might learn who you are, that we might learn about your creation, that we might learn about your plan for history, that we might learn about the essence of what makes human beings human beings, the very nature of mankind, and, Father, that we may learn what is the purpose and destiny for which you have called us. Father, as we study today, as we go back through these critical passages in the Old Testament at a crucial time in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah, may we be mindful that this is not simply an academic course in history, but it is a, an opportunity to draw connections between events in the past and circumstances in the present, that the principles and the realities uh, in terms of your involvement your faithfulness, your promises in the ancient world are just as real today and though, when, and as the situations are often similar, we learn to trust you and to seek your deliverance and protection in those same kinds of situations. We learn of your sufficiency, we learn of your grace, and we learn of your power. And so, Father, we pray that we might be able to focus, think through what we are studying this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today's June the 6th. Some 61 years ago today, the Allied forces finally stormed the beaches of Europe at Normandy in uh, a much long-awaited invasion of Europe in order to free the Europeans from the iron grip of the totalitarian government of the Nazi regime out of Germany. The Second World War began on September 1st in 1939, but actually it had been going on in a more or less peaceful manner since the rise of Hitler to power as he consolidated his position in Germany and as he began to uh, expand the control of Germany over uh, Austria, over Czechoslovakia, over the Sudetenland, and eventually, as he uh, mounted an armed invasion and the blitzkrieg of the panzer divisions 
went into Poland, the finally the Western allies began to wake up and pay attention a little too late. This is so often the mistake that we make because of our uh, aversion to violence that often we think that if we just uh, uh, continue to compromise and that eventually the bad guys will go away. And the problem with that is that it comes out of a view of mankind and a view of the world that doesn't take into consideration the horror and reality of real evil, that as the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, who can know it? That man is inherently evil rather than good, and that because of that, we can, although we often do good things, there are those who seek to dominate, those who seek to destroy, those who seek to control, and at times there is only one way to preserve freedom and to preserve peace, and that is to go to war. And so that finally became necessary in uh, 1939, and it led to six years of conflict, although the United States was only involved directly in the war from the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 to the end of the European conflict in May of 1945. Uh, it was that event some 61 years ago, Operation Overlord, when the Allies invaded the continent that was the uh, major shift that occurred in the balance of power in Europe and led eventually in the next uh, uh, 11 months to the defeat of the Nazi regime. What's interesting is that we uh, the importance of history is looking back and remembering these days. Last uh, Sunday we focused on Memorial Day and remembering those men and women who have served in our armed forces who uh, made the ultimate sacrifice and gave their lives, shed their blood on the field of battle since uh, 1776 in order to uh, provide for us the wonderful freedoms that we have. But so often we forget. We focus on current events. We're so busy with our own lives. We're so busy just trying to uh, be a success in our work or get an education or take care of children or family that we often do not take time to stop and really think about uh, what we have and to reflect upon the history. And we live in a culture, too, that has diminished or minimized uh, the importance of history for various reasons, but that we lose sight of these things. And it's easy to forget what has uh, surprised me this year is that uh, last night I started channel surfing through the uh, TV guide for today's movies and documentaries on D-Day, and I didn't find any. Usually you're loaded with uh, The Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, uh, The Battle of the Bulge, uh, Patton, all of these different films, which many of them played last weekend, but they're not playing this weekend. And, you, and I didn't even see any documentaries on the History Channel on D-Day, and I remember times... 10, 15 years ago, when these specials would run all day long. What we have to remember is that a culture that forgets its past has no clue as to its future and will destroy itself in the present. 
And that is a key principle we see displayed not only historically through various nations and empires, but we also see this work that it works itself out in the pages of Scripture. And so we have to take time to reflect, remember, and to look at history. History is not just, as Henry Ford said, just one damn thing after another. History is the outworking of God's plan in history. This is one thing that sets apart those who hold to a biblical view of truth and a biblical view of history from everybody else. Because we believe that the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, the God who called out Abraham and who established Israel as his own people, that he is the God who oversees history, who has a purpose for history, and that even though things may seem random and chaotic and uh, disconnected from our viewpoint, from his viewpoint, they are not, and he is truly working all things together in terms of the outworking of his plan. As we think about D-Day, we're reminded of what had to be accomplished on the European continent, that in 1939 into 1940, the Germans had dominated all of continental Europe with the exception of Switzerland and the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. And all of Europe was under the uh, jackboot of the Nazi government, and the Nazis were engaged in one of the most heinous crimes of all of history, and that it was the genocide, the specific attempt to annihilate all of the Jews in Europe. And they began to move all of the Jews in France, in Germany, in uh, the Netherlands and all the conquered countries east to Poland, where they established death camps in order to accomplish what they euphemistically refer to as the final solution uh, of the Jewish problem. Uh, but not everything about the Holocaust or its results was bad. One of the things that came out of the Holocaust was a fresh vision among those Jews who survived and among many Gentiles who loved the Jews as God's people was a recognition that there needed to be an independent uh, Israeli state, that there needed to be a national homeland where the Jews governed and protected themselves, where they could be safe. It had become clear since really the time that... Um, uh, uh, in the 1890s with the rise of Zionism, uh, that, that the Jews were not really safe. They could not truly assimilate into uh, European culture. Theodor Herzl recognized that, and he wrote uh, several books that called for a uh, return of the Jews to, to Israel and the establishment of a, of a national uh, national homeland. Now today, if you're familiar with the news and the current events, then you realize that Israel consistently is faced with existential uh, threats from the time of their very first war for independence in 1948 to the to the wars uh, against Egypt and the Sinai in the 50s and the Six-Day War in 67 and the Yom Kippur War uh, in 73 and on into uh, recent events with wars in, involving uh, Lebanon. And now we have this uh, this latest incident 
that occurred uh, just last week. And on the surface, to many people, it may not seem like this is all that significant, this uh, flotilla of of activists and supporters of terrorism trying to break the uh, blockade of Gaza in order to get so-called humanitarian aid. Uh, into Gaza, and of course, that's what the, the sh- that's all those ships are going to carry for quite a while is just humanitarian aid in order to uh, fool the rest of the world. So we're not trying to bring uh, guns and rockets and bombs into uh, uh, in, into Gaza. We're just bringing humanitarian aid. So there's no reason to search these ships, and most of the world is going to fall. Uh, right in line with that and willingly be deceived because they're still following the same pattern of Neville Chamberlain at Munich back in uh, the 1930s, and that is that somehow we can just uh, pacify those who are uh, those who are violent. But there are aspects to this that are extremely troubling. And it's interesting that as I have read through Many, many different uh, editorials, many different uh, opinion pieces, many different reports on what is going on, and most of these are written uh, in uh, various Jewish publications, Jewish uh, uh, websites, Jewish uh, newspapers out of Israel. There is a real sense of fear. I have received emails and heard of conversations to three or four different uh, people, American Jews, who are more concerned about the potential of what is going on right now uh, than anything that they have seen in, in decades. Uh, there is a sense of fear and anxiety there that, that it would not take very much to ignite World War III, that we are just teetering on the brink. And that is because that the world, more uh, more than we've seen in a long time, is standing in a position of condemnation against Israel. And there has been a full court press from the Israeli government to get out videos and to get out information and witness uh, eyewitnesses of the events that happened last week in order to make sure that their side is heard, but so much of the world just uh, doesn't care. We also live at a time when the United States, as the closest ally to Israel and the closest friend and supporter of Israel, is living at a time when we have an administration that is perceived by many to be uh, to have less than strong convictions about our support of our ally in the Middle East. And because that perception is there, uh, those who are supporters of terrorism, those who are supporters of the Palestinians, see an opportunity to drive a wedge between Tel Aviv and Washington and to uh, step up their attacks against the state of, uh, state of Israel. We live in a time when I think we, I think we're living in a unique time. I think we are living in a stage in history that is not unlike 19, uh, not unlike 1776, not unlike uh, the late 1850s. I think we're living in a time when there are things happening nationally and internationally that could go in a very bad direction or turn and reverse into a good direction. Uh, and I'm not a pessimist. That's that, that's not my nature. I, I, I'm an optimist. I don't like to think about bad things. I don't like to be a gloom and doomer. When I when I was growing up, I heard this conspiracy theory, that conspiracy theory. You've heard them. I've, I remember sitting in 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 uh, 
things in the back in the 60s when people said, you know, we're going to run out of food by 1976. The Earth's population is growing so rapidly. We're going to have starving millions in China and India, and we just can't feed all these people. And then there were these predictions of droughts and these predictions of these mass famines. And every decade uh, you also have the uh, doom and gloomers who say, you know, we're stretched on our national debt and uh, the dollar's weak and uh, we're off the gold standard and all of the various things that uh, that you hear and you hear the chicken littles screaming that the sky is falling year after year and others crying wolf year after year. And the problem with that is not that they were necessarily wrong because in many cases there were policies and there were things happening that could very well have had have gone wrong and definitely had that potential. I believe that God in his sovereignty and the way he has overseen history prevented that from happening. Uh, In some cases, we saw little glimpses of how bad things could get uh, with uh, the stock market little crash back in 87, again with what happened in 9-11. People in America do not realize how desperately close we came to a complete meltdown of the entire economic system in the West after 9-11. I have been told by someone who is in a position to know that uh, much of the insurance that was the property insurance, life insurance that covered those in the, in the Twin Towers in, uh, at, at 9-11 was held by two or three large companies. AIG was one of them. Chubb was another one. I think there were maybe one or two others, and that President Bush and Vice President Cheney went to them and said, you are within your legal rights to view this as an act of war and to not pay. But if you do not pay on the insurance claims, the economic reverberations of that in the United States and in Europe will just about destroy the economic system of the West, and the terrorists will win. So we are asking you to pay off on all the insurance claims. And they did. That is one of the reasons why when AIG was about to go belly up a couple of years ago that the Bush White House bailed out AIG. We could have been, we could have lost everything in 9-11. But we have a God who is in control of history. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who are believers in the Bible, we gain great comfort from that because we know that things could be much, much worse. And things are the way they are, and God allows things to be the way they are for his purposes uh, in history. And so even though we we don't like to dwell on these things, uh, we do need to recognize that there are things that could happen and things that will happen eventually in history that are uh, very, very terrible. That's the same kind of message that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel brought to the southern kingdom of Judah back in the ancient world. And it was a message that was largely ignored by the people who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah during that time because people don't like to listen to the gloom and doom reports, and they like to think optimistically and hopefully that there, that there is a future and that whatever it is that they're doing in life is not going to lead to an ultimate collapse of everything that they know. 
But that potential certainly did come into, uh, come into reality for the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 when they were destroyed and defeated by the Assyrians and later by the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 when the Babylonians finally overran them, defeated them, destroyed uh, Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. We live in a world that is just as unstable, maybe more so than what the southern kingdom of Judah faced uh, during those times. We see the problems that we have in the Middle East, such that in this recent event, we see a cozying up of Turkey with Iran. There was an article this morning that I briefly glanced at discussing how uh, Ahmadinejad, or as he is otherwise known as Ahmadinejad, um, <laughs> is trying to curry favor and deepen the relationship uh, with Turkey. And, of course, between Iran and Turkey, you have uh, Syria, not known for their support of uh, uh, Israel. And uh, Hezbollah is uh, deeply entrenched in Syria and Lebanon, and Hezbollah is just a... uh, an arm of, uh, of Iran and is being deeply supported by Iran, who's been uh, moving uh, thousands of missiles and arms and weapons uh, to uh, the forces of Hezbollah that are massed on the northern border of Israel. And there could be an invasion, another uh, Lebanon war breakout, as uh, occurred two years ago, uh, at any moment. Maybe not. We don't know. But the potential is there, and now they have more advanced missiles. They don't have these little missiles that are just going to pop over five or six miles of range, but they have missiles that can hit Tiberius and missiles that can hit Haifa and missiles that can hit uh, uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And this is um, extremely serious. Hamas is getting, uh, down in Gaza, is getting uh, also more advanced uh, weaponry, and this is one of the reasons that this blockade must continue. And the U.S. can't waffle on this, and they are. Our government, I've heard three reports now, that they are seriously considering whether we should continue to support Israel in this Gaza blockade. And to remove the Gaza blockade they, is an act of suicide, because if there's no blockade, then uh, the forces of evil can bring all manner of weapons into the Gaza, Gaza Strip area, and then that in turn will be used in a war against Israel. And so it's time for us to act in, in, in a number of different ways, I think, as, as uh, citizens of the United States, not just because you're a Christian, but informed as citizens of the United States because, as I said earlier, we're living in a critical junction of history. And when we see government leaders who are not coming out in full-bore support of Israel in this situation, then we should be calling our congressmen, calling senators, sending letters to the White House. We can't be a silent majority anymore, or we will uh, truly see the world change in ways that we uh, cannot imagine and don't, don't want to imagine. But we don't just have the problem of the Middle East. We have the problem of economics. We have the problem of the pigs in Europe. You all know that term? The pigs, the Portugal. It's an acronym for Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. 
because their, their economy is so bad because they've had socialized health care, they've been spending way beyond their means, that their national debts are so far beyond their uh, ability to pay that it threatens the economic stability of Europe. We've seen the euro drop down. I think uh, Friday it closed at $1.19. And I think it was up in around a dollar forty-one or forty-two, and has been in that range for the last two or three years as I've gone over to Europe and gone over to Kiev. And so it's dropped quite a bit in its value. There are those who think it's going to reach parity with the dollar. Uh, that means it's a, do- a dollar would equal a euro. That's great if you want to travel to Europe. But uh, what that means is that. Uh, the European economy, if it completely stagnates, which is about where it is right now, then many companies that are U.S.-based that, that sell uh, products to Europe won't have a market because they can't afford it. And so we live with this global economy, and so uh, it can have a devastating consequence. Just look, the stock market has dropped uh, about six or 700 points uh, in, in, since the uh, since January, and much of that is due to the instability that we see in Europe. And if there is a complete collapse of the euro and the European Union, uh, we can't. Uh, you know, who knows how that's going to impact uh, the United States? Uh, there are monetary instruments of many nations that, uh, including the euro, that are on the very brink of collapse. And there are those who are, would seek to manipulate that. Uh, so that they could move us to an international currency and, do, once again, doing away with more and more uh, national, uh, national distinctions and moving towards um, internationalism. Another area, just the press of the whole envir- radical environmentalist movement. Now, it's important as believers that we recognize the stewardship of human beings over the planet, but that's different. The biblical view of the environment, the biblical view of stewardship over creation is very different from the uh, pagan pantheistic view that tends to dominate things. And, and we often get a very distorted uh, perspective from, from news media. But we see more and more things that are happening. We have this uh, oil spill out in the Gulf that is uh, being touted and presented in most media outlets as, as virtually an environmental Armageddon. But it's not. It doesn't even make the top 20 list of oil spills yet. I have a list here of the top ten. The worst was in Kuwait in 1991 as part of the Gulf War. The second worst, and you probably wouldn't even guess this, occurred in 1980 in Mexico, and there was an offshore well in the Gulf there that uh, exploded. The well collapsed, and uh, the well remained open for a year before they got a backup well in there and capped it, and it released uh, 30,000 gallons a day into the Gulf. And so there are a number of other instances and things like this have gone on. You can go on the on the uh, internet and you can find a number of different uh, places where they list all of the uh, worst oil spills. Not to mention all the oil that got spilled when all the shipping that was sunk during the uh, second uh, Second World War. But we're told that this is this environmental catastrophe and environmental Armageddon, and so we have a uh, an administration that reacts emotionally to this and wants to shut down all drilling operations in the Gulf. This is absurd. Okay, we're going to have a tremendous hit in the Gulf states on, on, uh, uh, on jobs and in their economy. So let's come along and shut down all drilling 
and really screw up the economy in the South. Oh, yeah, that's right. They, most of those states voted for somebody else in the last election, didn't they? So let's have a little uh, revenge and try to destroy the economy of all of the Gulf states and all of the uh, states that went Republican. This is absurd. And we just have a culture that can't think objectively anymore because they've forgotten history. Nobody's going back and talking about, with any kind of long-term perspective, on the history of oil spills, on the history of economics, and these things. goes back to that same principle I stated in relationship to, to um, observing D-Day. A nation that forgets its past and ignores the future, is going to destroy itself in the present. Same kind of thing is clear in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to our passage this morning in Second Chronicles. You didn't think we would get there, did you? Second Chronicles 30. Now, this is an important time in the history of Israel, and I want to set this up because over the next two or three Sundays, we're going to be focused on the events that are about to occur in Israel. In 715, Hezekiah became the king. Now, think in terms of international geopolitics at that time. Over the last 30 or 40 years, you'd had the rise of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and they had come to pretty much dominate the Middle East. Same areas, same countries, same territories we're talking about today. You can see this on the map. You see the green swath there. And uh, that's the size of the uh, Assyrian Empire by 700. Now, most people believe that when uh, uh, the Assyrian army under Sennacherib invaded into Judah and surrounded Jerusalem, which is where we're headed, national catastrophe, national invasion, the security and the future of the southern kingdom of Judah was, uh, was on the brink, that, that this is that time period. And so they are at the height of their power with the Assyrian Empire. Now, here's another uh, map that I picked up. And the reason I'm putting this up here is you can see the same general area uh, in the ancient world. Uh, the domination of the Assyrians goes up into what's modern Turkey, down through the area of uh, Syria, Lebanon, etc. But in this map, we're going to superimpose the boundaries for the modern states. And so you get a, a very good idea of the spread of the Assyrian Empire from uh, about a third of what is modern Iran, all, almost all of Iraq, uh, Syria, a good portion of modern Turkey, uh, Lebanon, uh, some, a little bit into Jordan, down into, they conquered down to Egypt. But this was the extent of the Assyrian Empire as they were, were growing. And so they were among one of the worst, most brutal, violent empires in the ancient world. The soldiers would love to have contests with their prisoners to see who could stake out a prisoner and skin him alive and see who would be able to keep their prisoner alive the longest and have them scream the most. They were absolutely uh, uh, brutal. So this is the threat that the southern kingdom of Judah is facing. The world at that time was against them, just as the world today is, for the most part, against the state of Israel. But they had the same God. 
And the same God that made the promise to Abraham that he would give them that land is the same God that still protects Israel and still watches over his people, even though uh, they are not all in the land and a nation in the same sense they were in the ancient world. His promise is still the same. So how did Hezekiah, as a king, as a leader, prepare his people for what he saw was coming. See, in 715, when he became the king, he'd been the, he had been a co-regent with his father Ahaz for the past 10 or 12 years. But in 715, he became the king. Now, just seven years before he became the sole king, the Assyrians had come down and, and defeated and wiped out the northern kingdom of, of Israel. The ten tribes that were in the north that had been mostly in rebellion against God or completely in rebellion against God uh, from the time of the division back uh, under uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, that the northern kingdom was destroyed, defeated, and those people deported and taken to other areas of the Assyrian Empire uh, where they were removed, and then other groups and peoples who had been defeated were brought into the area of the northern kingdom of Israel to, re, uh, to repopulate it. And so Hezekiah had seen this, and he knew that uh, even though Sargon II had died, that the threat of another invasion from Assyria was, was imminent. And so his job was to protect the nation. So how did he handle it? Did he handle it? Was his first priority to go out and uh, reestablish the military superiority of the nation? No. Was his first uh, uh, priority to go out and try to make sure all of the social problems in the nation were, were solved? No. What he did was he knew that the ultimate causative issue in history, in nations, as well as in our individual lives, is always a spiritual issue, and it's always based on that individual relationship with God. And so we learn a couple of important principles as we begin this in terms of how we prepare for any disaster, whether it's a personal disaster, personal adversity, or whether it's national. First principle is that the key to facing any adversity is mental attitude. We have to be mentally tough. We live in a nation that is no longer mentally tough. The generation that fought in World War II became mentally tough in the Depression, They learned how to face hardship and difficulty and to do without. We live in a nation that has produced a generation of wimps and pansies. We live in a world today where it is almost impossible to find Christians who have the spiritual guts to go on the mission field for more than two or three years because they can't go to McDonald's, they can't drive a BMW, they can't have air conditioning. And so our missionary force has been depleted drastically over the last 30 years as the generation from World War II has reached retirement age and come off of the field. So we don't have a tough mental attitude anymore in our culture. We are too, uh, we've become too soft. The key to a strong mental attitude, though, is not just being mentally tough. It's not just pulling ourselves up by our our bootstraps. The key to a really solid, tough mental attitude is always spiritual. That's at the core. And that spirituality is related to a right relationship to God. If you have a relativistic 
view of spirituality. If you have a view of spirituality based on modern psychobabble and, you know, put, having a good self-image and making sure that self is, uh, is uh, all squared away and it's all self-centered, then you can't operate in an environment where there is a real crisis and a real catastrophe where you have to be dependent upon others and watch out uh, watch out for others. You have to be able to look at reality objectively when you're in a crisis, and you have to be able to correctly analyze things, and you only get that if you have an objective basis for looking at life, if you look at life from God's perspective. So the relationship with God, based on the spiritual truth of the Scriptures, is the only thing that's going to uh, give us the core strength to have a tough mental attitude. And so we have to be dependent upon God, learn to understand reality and creation as God revealed it, which means the Scripture has to be at the focal point. This is exactly what God said to Moses in, and is revealed in Deuteronomy, that he had given his word to Israel and they were to bind it on their foreheads and on their hands. They were to teach it to their children. And all that is to indicate that this is supposed to be the highest priority in their life, and they have to think in terms of God's revelation. And if you don't think in terms of God's revelation because you've lost that objectivity, you're just making it up as you go along. Because if there is a God and he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, then he communicates to his creatures that which they need to know in order to properly understand his creation. And so revelation, understanding the scripture, has to be at the center of your thinking. And so the divine revelation that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament was very clear. Obey me and do exactly as I say, and I will bless you, and you will prosper, and I will protect you from your enemies. But if you disobey me, if you go after other gods and you ignore me, then there will be famine, there will be, uh, there will be disease, there will be wars and defeats from your enemies. And if you continue in your disobedience, you continue to ignore me, then I will take you out of this land that I gave you. And I will re- remove you from the land, but it's not going to be permanent because he promised there would come a time when he would turn, return them to the land. And again and again and again in the Old Testament, there's that focus that Israel would indeed in the future uh, disobey God, reject God, and God would indeed remove them from the land, which he did in 722 and 586 and again in 8070, but that if they would turn back to him, once again, the issue isn't technology, the issue isn't social policy, the issue is that right relationship with God, then he would uh, return them to the land. So Hezekiah understood that, and we studied the last couple of weeks how Hezekiah started his administration by cleaning up the temple, not just in terms of the fact that it was a physical mess with all of the uh, spiritual trash left over from the uh, pagan rule of his idolatrous father Ahaz, but they had to cleanse it ritually through the various sacrifices described in the in, in Leviticus, and they had to also consecrate the priesthood again so that there would be a a correct 
correctly cleansed, sanctified priesthood that would be in charge of the worship of the nation and their relationship to God. And so we saw this in various passages, such as Second uh, Chronicles 29:15, that um, the priests assembled their brothers and they consecrated themselves and went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord. And this word that is translated uh, cleanse is in this passage is the word taher, meaning to uh, to, to ritually cleanse something. It's the, uh, the Greek Septuagint translated with the word katharizo. And so the, we find this word again and again in passages uh, in the next verse, in verse 16, again down in verse 18. Verse 17 used a synonym based on the verb kadash, meaning to consecrate or to set apart for the service of God. And so the first thing we learn is that before the nation could be, be, be prepared to handle the cri- coming crisis in 701, the first thing they had to do was they had to get their relationship with God straight. That meant cleansing the temple and restoring the temple to, uh, to the focal point of worship of the nation. So they cleansed the temple, but they didn't stop there. That was the starting point, but true cleansing led to other steps of action, and that meant they had to go out and get rid of all of the uh, the idols that had been created in the high places, even to the point of removing this one particular uh, relic that they had from the time of the uh, the time of the exodus, the uh, bronze serpent that Moses had 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 made uh, at the time that they ran into all of the uh, the, the fiery uh, vipers in the wilderness. And that had in itself become an object of worship. And so all of this was destroyed by Hezekiah. And we've covered that in the previous chapters. And then we come to the next step. See, it's not just enough to get everything straightened out in terms of the temple and get it cleansed and set apart. Application, it's just enough to get right with God in terms of salvation. But there has to be the ongoing walk with God in terms of observance of his word. It doesn't just end with salvation. It just doesn't end with making sure you're right with God. It has to go forward in terms of that ongoing ongoing walk with God. And this is what Hezekiah recognized as the next step, and that is bringing the nation to a point of observance of the Passover. Now, it had been a number of years since they had observed the Passover. They didn't have a consecrated priesthood. They had an idolatrous king in Ahaz. The doors of the temple had been closed and locked shut, and so there had been no observance of the Passover. Now, because they had a limited number of priests that had been consecrated, and because they couldn't go through the didn't have enough priests to perform all of the sacrifices for the lambs of the Passover. They, they had to postpone the Passover a month. Normally the Passover was to be observed on the uh, 14th day of the first month of the ritual calendar, which would be some, the month of Nisan, which is sometime roughly related to our March or April. But within the Mosaic Law, there was also a provision there for those that were not properly cleansed or able to uh, observe uh, Passover uh, during the proper time, they could postpone it according to Numbers 9, verses 9 through 12. Uh, they could postpone it and observe it on the second month of the year. 
And this is the provision that Hezekiah invokes in chapter 30. So there is the movement from uh, preparation for worship, the cleansing of the temple, cleansing of the priesthood, to then the ongoing relationship with God. And Passover rec- represented that because the Passover is perhaps the, between the Passover and Yom Kippur in, in the fall. These are two of the most signif- spiritually significant feast times uh, for Israel. It is Passover that looked back to the redemption of the nation, their freedom from slavery in Egypt. But that Passover also anticipated something. It anticipated a future spiritual redemption for the world, a redemption from the slavery to sin. And the central feature of the Passover was the lamb, the lamb that was to be without spot or blemish, a lamb that was had been evaluated, a lamb that had been tested to make sure that it was truly without spot or blemish. And that lamb then that had done nothing wrong, that lamb that was perfectly uh, innocent of anything, was then sacrificed. Its throat was slit and it was sacrificed on the altar because it was to depict something, and that was that sin had to be dealt with through a, a death. And as the John the Baptist came along in, in the first part of the Gospels, he was announcing that, uh, that the people needed to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that one was coming after him that was greater than he, and that this one who was coming, when he came, he announced him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That very image there was that John was connecting the Passover lamb to Jesus that Jesus would be, as the Messiah, would be the one who would, by his death on the cross, he would be the one who would take away the sin of the world. This is, And he was sacrificed. He was executed on that cross on Passover day at the very same time that Jesus was hanging on the cross, the very same time that the Gospels say that uh, the land became dark and that God judged uh Jesus in our place on the cross and imputed, judicially imputed to him the sins of mankind. At that same time, the priests were in the temple sacrificing, slaughtering the paschal lambs for the observance of Passover in Jerusalem. It was the perfect type and antitype. It was the fulfillment was on the hill of Golgotha, just outside the wall, was fulfilling the type, the picture that was uh, there from the Passover lamb. And so it is that Passover lamb that pictures the, the freedom of the nation from slavery. And last time I went to John 8 and talked about the fact that we have real, you can't have real freedom unless there's freedom from sin. Because and and that's not doesn't mean that we free our lives from sin. We never become perfect. We never become sinless. That doesn't happen. But that the sin problem has to be dealt with. And until that's dealt with, that Jesus said we are slaves to sin. But that by trusting in Him and having that sin problem dealt with by faith in Christ, then and only then is there the beginning of real freedom. It was as Paul says in Galatians five one, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so what we see in Second Chronicles is the emphasis on, on the consecration of the nation through Passover. 
uh, reading in verses 3 and 4, we read, For they could not keep it, that is, the Passover at the regular time, because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. It was one of three key feast days in the Jewish calendar where the, all the males in the nation were required to come to Jerusalem to observe uh, the Passover. And so they postponed it that one month, as I pointed out already. Verses 5 and 6, we read, So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, not just in Judah, but they recognized this is for the whole nation, for those Jews that still reside in the area of the former uh, northern kingdom, they are all invited to come to the central sanctuary in Jerusalem in order to be cleansed and in order to get right with God. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba, that's the southernmost point, to Dan in the north, the northernmost part, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come uh, come to celebrate. Okay, that's a repetition there on that slide. Verse 6, Then the runners went throughout all the land of Israel and Judah uh, with letters from the king and his leaders, and they spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel returned to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That is the call to return is a key phrase there. This is the Hebrew word shuv, which is the same word that we find repeated again and again in the Old Testament related to Israel turning back to God in spiritual uh, relationship. This was part of Solomon's prayer in Second Chronicles 7.14, where Solomon pray, prayed that if my people who are called by my name, he's not talking about Christians, it's often ripped out of context, he's talking about Israel and the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 30 promise. My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn. There's that word. Shoo, turn from the idols to God. Turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. That is the precondition. Turn to God. I will uh, forgive their sin, heal their land. This goes right back to Deuteronomy Chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, the key verse being there in the in verse 2. Uh, I'll start in the middle of verse 1. He says, If you call to mind all these things I've told you in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you, and you return, there's that word again, shuv, you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And that has never yet happened in history. And that will happen in the future because the God who made that promise to Moses and the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who never changes. And he is the God who is able to bring about exactly what he has promised, and he will fulfill that. And Hezekiah is going back to that, and he is saying, you need to come back and come back to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover, and turn back to God. But what happened is those in the north who have, uh, who were still mired in their apostasy and rejection of God, 
uh, stayed there. They didn't come, and they continue to reap the negative consequences of their bad spiritual decisions for several generations. Then we go on to um, verse 8 and 9. Uh, they said, Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord, that is, submit to his authority, and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. This is turning away the, ju- justice, uh, the judgment of God up, upon the nation. And notice that it's not just a matter of getting... Uh, getting the temple cleansed, it's not, and we would say it's not just a matter of salvation. It's not just a matter of getting in fellowship. It's a matter of serving the Lord, ongoing obedience. The emphasis is on spiritual growth, spiritual advance, and staying in right relationship with God. And then there's the promise there in verse 9, For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion, by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So there's that condition. In other words, what God is saying is you want to get things right when things are a mess. First, the starting point is in your relationship uh, with me. And so as you read on through the chapter the people come together, those who responded positively. They gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began with Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long, uh, week-long feast, and they celebrated that in a large assembly. And it wasn't just that they celebrated that. What happened? They cleansed the land from all of the idols. Verse 14, they arose and removed the altars which were in Jerusalem. They also removed all the incense altars and cast them into the brook uh, Kidron, which meant that they had an action plan. It's not just, well, let's make sure we're sanctified and consecrated, but they went out and made changes in their culture and made changes uh, in their lives. And so verse 15 just reiterates that they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second Month And then there's an impact here on the priests and Levites. They're ashamed. See, sometimes there's a recognition of failure, and it has those consequences. They were ashamed of their own disobedience, and they sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings uh, to the house of the Lord. And then verse 18, a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, this is the northern kingdom, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, uh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, See, they don't have the right procedure because, and here they're ignorant. They don't have the right procedure. They don't cleanse themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah, this is fascinating, Hezekiah stands as a mediator for them, for the nation, and he prays to God for them that they will be cleansed, and this is the import of the statement, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone. And here we have that Hebrew word kafar, which is often has the idea of cleansing from sin and that there is a, 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 a satisfaction of the righteousness of God because of uh, the ritual that we see in the Old Testament. And so he prayed for them for atonement for them. And he gave encouragement to the, all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days 
offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. So there's this the ongoing obedience to God. And what's the consequence of that? It changes their mentality. There is joy and rejoicing now in the land because they are right with God. And this continued uh, for the next seven days with gladness and with joy. Now, this shows the restoration of the nation spiritually. It brings us up to the point uh, that we'll go back to next week in Second Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 8, when they're now prepared for the Assyrian invasion. They, to handle that, they first had to handle the spiritual orientation of their soul. So we'll come back and focus on how you handle the crisis, but first you have to be properly prepared with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be challenged by them and to recognize that that the key to handling crisis and adversity in our lives is to have you at the center of our life. Father, we need to recognize that first and foremost there has to be a right relationship with you And that can only happen if the sin problem is dealt with, and that's on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That Jesus was the one who knew no sin and was made sin on our behalf. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He is the one who uh, bore in his own body on the cross our sins so that by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have studied today and that those who have never trusted Christ would take this opportunity to do so. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.